4: On this episode of Newt's World, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns have just written a stunning new book about the last 18 months of Democratic and Republican behind-the-scenes jockeying in government, entitled, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And they've been doing multiple media appearances and releasing audio clips from their reporting for the book since it was published on May 3rd. Jonathan Martin is a national political correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for CNN. He joined the Times in 2013 after working as a senior political writer for Politico. Alexander Burns is a national correspondent for the New York Times and a political analyst for CNN. He joined the Times in 2015 after working as a reporter and editor at Politico. You guys sort of both have a similar political background anyway.
5: You share a birthday, Mr. Speaker.
4: The two of you do?
5: We do. Not the same year, but the same day.
4: That's amazing. And you're obviously a very successful team, and you've been getting just rave reviews about the book, which I think is fascinating. I'm very delighted that you were able to join me because I know how busy both of you are and how much in demand you've been as this book has taken off. But I'm curious, between the two of you, How many years have you spent covering politics in Washington?
5: Well, me in 2005, Alex in 08. So what is that, 30 years? About a little over 30,
6: yeah.
4: That's impressive. So you approach this, and of course, in the classic tradition of the New York Times, you have astonishing sources, which is one of the great strengths of the great lady, even if on occasion, as you can imagine, I'm not all that thrilled with some of their biases. You both, as experienced professionals, you've seen lots of books like this. When you sat down to begin putting this together, what did the two of you think would make it unique?
5: First of all, thanks for having us on, Mr. Speaker, and we're excited to be here. I think what we wanted to do was something different from the traditional campaign books and also different from the kind of, you know, hurried and sort of dashed off First drafts of history, we wanted to create something more durable. And we wanted to take the time to do it. We decided after the election that we were going to take a little bit more time to write this book. And after January 6th, we said, let's not rush this thing. Let's step back, do a lot of reporting, and write the fullest, richest, most comprehensive account of this tumultuous period of American politics as we can. And let's not try to rush it out this year. Let's sort take our time and really use calendar year 21 to report. And that's what we did. And I think a lot of your listeners will enjoy it because it's not just purely an account of President Trump. It's a much more comprehensive panoramic version of events. It's Trump, yes, but it's also Biden's first year in the White House. It's also a lot of Congress. I mean, We have a lot of material here from the House and Senate. We spend a lot of time on the Hill. And then lastly, it's beyond Washington. We have a lot of reporting from governors, from mayors, from all levels of government.
6: Alex, you want to add to that? No, I, mean, I think Jonathan covered it for the most part, but I think I would just add, Newt, that you know, as you know, there's a certain set of conventions around what kind of books political reporters write that over here On one shelf, there are campaign books, and those books start with the eventual winner announcing his campaign, and they end with election day. And over here on a different shelf are books about the presidency, and those start after the campaign is over. And on a third shelf, and frankly, a smaller shelf, is books about Congress. And we felt like we wanted to do something that that crossed those genres, and we just sort of reject the conventions that separate politics from policy and government, because as you know very well, there's just actually no distinguishing them in those bright line terms.
4: in the end, it's all about personalities, policies, and positions weaving together. And of course, I don't know of many occasions, maybe Buchanan being followed by Lincoln, but there are very few occasions where you have the scale of personality change that you get between Trump and Biden, or between the two teams. I mean, It seems to me you were covering a moment that has an extraordinary scale of change involved in it.
5: No, it's true. And, you know, Alex and I talk about this often. You know, Donald Trump's grounding is sort of mostly in the real estate, casino, hotel, and then, frankly, the celebrity world. You know, Joe Biden's grounding is with, you know, politicians who come from the World War I era in some cases. You know, he served with people like John Stennis and Sam Irvin, these sort of figures torn from the American history books. And Donald Trump's frame of reference is like, you know, Mike Tyson and Herschel Walker and Michael Jackson. And it's just so profoundly different. They're close in age, but their life experiences is so extraordinarily different.
4: The Daily Show's Trevor Noah said, the book was like the real housewives of Washington, D.C., which I actually take as a great compliment. I wonder how you guys reacted to it.
6: I totally welcome that. It's what you were saying, that it's personalities and policies weaving together. And I think that there's this, again, this convention and somewhat pompous convention in political reporting where over here, we're going to cover the sort of drama of the campaign. and Over here, we're going to cover you know the School of Athens debating what kind of tax policy we're going to have or what kind of defense posture we're going to have. And more than ever, frankly, in the Trump era, and then because of the staggering shift in the personalities involved the Trump era into the Biden era, those are obviously sort of inseparable lines of reporting.
4: You had the drama of Donald Trump and his world. You had the drama of Biden and his world. And you had this chaotic nightmare of January 6th. So there's sort of like three different acts going on all of which kind of weave together. Does that kind of fit how the picture began to emerge for you two?
6: It does. And I think that the sort of overarching question that ties them all together is does this political system work? Can it be made to work? And I think that typically in these times when people ask that question, they're referencing basically the first act of the book, which is the trials and tribulations and failures of the Trump administration. But The transfer of power was an extraordinarily fraught period for our country, and the first year of the Biden administration brought a whole new set of trials of its own That for the Democrats who thought that a new president was going to come in with his sort of team of more conventional, better-trained advisors and sort of whip this country into shape. well, The story has obviously been a lot more complicated than that, and by the time we got to the point of turning in the book, it was clear that Democrats were facing a pretty significant set of disappointments of their own.
4: Having lived through all this stuff, going back to my first race was in nineteen seventy four in the middle of Watergate, which turned out not to be as good a year for Republicans to run as I could have picked. But then the second time I lost, I got forty eight and a half percent the second time I ran was with Jimmy Carter at the head of the Democratic ticket in Georgia, which turned out also not to be the best possible year to run. But then we got into the Carter inflation cycle, and all the things began to go wrong for Jimmy, and in some ways, there are some parallels, at least from my experience, between Carter and Biden in terms of things that start to get out of control and you don't know how to deal with them. And in a sense, I think that's what happened to Trump with COVID, that he sort of had things under control. Things were sort of going all right up through January. And then this worldwide pandemic, which frightens everybody, I think just sort of devours the year in terms of Trump. And he can never quite get his footing again.
5: Three things happened at the outset of 2020 that I think undermined Trump's prospects for re-election. COVID is the obvious one. The economic impact of COVID is the second one. And then the sudden collapse of Bernie Sanders. And I think the sort of combination of those three factors really torpedoed his re-election because he was banking on running on peace and prosperity and against the sort of perceived accesses of the opposition. And when he didn't have Bernie to run against, he'd lost the economic card and then lost, obviously, the sort of public health card. That was really tough for him to overcome, I think.
4: By some time in midsummer, he clearly is now the underdog, which is not at all what he had thought would happen. And I've always wondered, Biden, on the one hand, ran a brilliant basement campaign, on the other hand, as I've watched Biden over the last year and a half, I've wondered if they almost didn't have to run a basement campaign, although at the time, I think he was in better shape as a person in 2020 than he is now, just looking back at some of his appearances. But did you get that sense that it was it was more calculated politically than as a function of his personality at that point?
6: Well, I think it's certainly both, but it's one of the conversations that Jonathan and I had almost daily at the start of the general election in 2020. And we had it with our editors and with readers and sources who, I mean, you have a sense of the ideological orientation of readers of the New York Times. I think that there was a lot of anxiety that Biden was letting this thing get away from him by sitting in the basement all that time. And the reality was his campaign, for the most part, felt pretty good about running this, you know, modified subterranean Rose Garden strategy, right? Because if he was out there on the rope line every day, he's getting questions and he'll answer them. And who on earth knows what he'll say, right? And by the way, the same is to a different and perhaps lesser extent true of his eventual running mate, that you know, Kamala Harris is a primary candidate in the Democratic race was really prone to sort of stepping on a rake here and there, and that was not as much of an option in the general election. One of the things that we report in the book, Newt, is that Ron Klein was actually one of the real doubters of the basement strategy, He's firing off emails to the Biden campaign, high command saying, you are losing the election, get him out of the basement. And for the most part, they didn't, and for the most part, that worked for them. I think it brilliantly
4: became a referendum on Trump, as opposed to a choice. Yeah, if you had told the sort of
5: Democratic operative class, you can run a 2020 campaign against Donald Trump in which you could keep your 2 gaff gaffe-prone ticket mates basically away from any questions from voters or the press for the duration of the campaign and turn it into a referendum on Joe Biden, they would take that deal every day.
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
3: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So
1: follow The 7 right now.
4: There are two women that are prominent in your book from very different angles. And let me say, by the way, that Trump used me as a stalking horse for a brief period while he was picking Pence. Weren't you there in Indianapolis when Pence? Yes, I went out and we met and he went through the motions, partly to please Sean Hannity. And I finally turned and I said, You know, you don't have any choice. I said, You're a pirate and I'm a pirate. You can't have a two pirate ticket. (laughs) (laughs) You need Pence to reach out to normal human beings.
6: (laughs) You need the first mate over here, the Commodore. The British Royal Navy. Mike Pence.
4: In any event, so let's start with the more prominent of the two women, and that's Kamala Harris, who I think I don't understand, given how badly she performed as a candidate, why they would have picked her.
6: Well, I think the answer overwhelmingly is that it was a really short-term calculus, that they wanted a candidate who was not going to surprise them. They wanted a candidate who was going to represent sort of a gesture to a younger generation, although not a wild leap in generations. They felt it was very, very important that they have a woman of color and Post-George Floyd, a black woman. And you know, the argument, again, that we report that a claim made in particular was: listen, you should choose someone who's run for president themselves, even if they haven't done a particularly good job of it, which she didn't, but because they know what it's like under the hot lights. And if you choose someone like a Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, or a Tammy Duckworth, the senator from Illinois, you know, they're impressive people in their own right but they've just never been on this kind of stage before. And look, I think as a long-term proposition, that's obviously been a pretty mixed bag for the Biden team and for the Biden-Harris partnership. But overwhelmingly, Newt, I think we can't stress enough that our reporting for the book showed that they were thinking basically just like, what do we need to do to get through the remaining 12 weeks or so and get past Trump in November?
4: Mona, in that sense, it worked, although it, it has been a puzzlement to me ever since. I have to jump to the other woman who is, I think, fascinating in this period, somebody I've known for most of her life, and I've been astonished at how she's evolved, and that's Liz Cheney, who I think is one of the most interesting characters in contemporary American politics. So you and Cheney
5: were in the same class, right, 78?
4: I mean, he'd been the youngest chief of staff to a president in history, and I was a twice defeated assistant professor at State College. Otherwise, we were exactly even when we arrived in the class of 1978. And I like Dick a lot. I like his whole family. I think that Lynn has been a great historian. Dick and I were very, very close. I mean, I suspect we wouldn't be right now, but we were at that time. And I knew Liz through various parts of her career, and I think very highly of her. And I've just been watching this sort of kind of like a whirling dervish process of evolution. So I
5: want to answer your question on Liz Cheney in a minute, but it just occurs to me, Alex, sitting here, that there would be a hell of a book to be written about sort of the history of the GOP through the prism of Cheney and Gingrich, the class of 78, from then till today. Just tracing those two characters, Georgia and Wyoming. I love it. Anyways, so on Liz Cheney, she's a sort of down the line, traditional conservative. She's a hawk. I think she is somebody who was never a huge Trump fan. I think after he refused to concede defeat, I think she was appalled by that, and I think the events of January 6th have really shaped her. She deeply believes that Donald Trump presents a threat to the Constitution, that he must not be allowed to run for office again. I think her father shares her concerns. I think that she, as time has gone on, has just gotten more emboldened about speaking out regarding her feelings. But we have a scene in the book, even in the hours after Trump's rally on the ellipse, where he first sort of, you know, invoked her name and said, we got to beat her. She was already enraged at Trump. She told a colleague, I think coming back to the Capitol from the evacuation, you know, we had to impeach the son of a bitch. So, you know, just hours after the attack happened, she is somebody who I think didn't take long in private to start, you know, really feeling radicalized by Trump. But in public, I think it was a matter of weeks and months. I think now she's obviously sort of made her peace with Trump and with Kevin McCarthy and the party.
4: Yeah, I mean, it strikes me now that she's clearly off on a different path that has no potential for turning back.
5: No, you're totally right. And I think that she would be fine becoming a political martyr of sorts this summer in her primary in Wyoming. And I think that if she does lose, I think she's very much open to running for president either as a Republican or as some kind of a third party candidate to try to stop Trump.
4: I had a very informed Wyoming politician tell me that she thought that the odds were very high that Liz would, in fact, not file and would take the money she's raised and just launch an independent candidacy. Now, I think in the John Anderson tradition, she might actually hurt the Democrats more than the Republicans, and that she had better think carefully about how that evolves.
5: It's a great point. You know, she and her father have lived enough political history to recognize that she could do just that. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds. You know, we've asked the same question about her re-election. Is she actually going to file? Is she actually going to run in the primary? And they swear up and down that she is, in fact, going to run. And the primary is in August. You know, it's now mid-May, so there's not much time left.
6: And Newt, you know, unlike some of the other folks who voted for impeachment and have since bowed out of re-election, Adam Kinzinger, John Katko, Fred Upton, she can't claim that she's been gerrymandered out of her seat, right? They're not redrawing that district in Wyoming to her detriment.
4: Well, and I think part of what happens to a bunch of them is that they just get tired. You go back home and The Trump base, for better or worse, is ferocious and intense and unyielding. And I think you just get tired of trying to deal with
6: it. I think that's totally true. You know, some of them have legitimate concerns about their security. Liz Cheney's staff gets briefed on threats to her every week. There are members on both sides of the aisle who, you know, and some of them, it's not even for particularly ideological reasons. There's just a lot of angry people out there in the country. And a lot of those angry people have some pretty in some cases, pretty specific and pretty scary stuff to say about their elected representatives. And you see this big exodus from the House, predominantly on the Democratic side, anticipating that it's going to be a really, really bad campaign season for them. But across the aisle, I do think there's just this incredible sense of fatigue and this sense that you know too many of the voters are too hostile.
4: The pattern that's evolving reminds me a great deal of the rise of the Jacksonians at the state level. There's a Very interesting book that looks at Polk's the one who becomes most famous and becomes president. But you had all these candidates for governor, et cetera, who were clearly Jackson's people and represented this kind of populism and this kind of anti-Eastern attitude. And you sort of see that grinding its way through the Republican Party right now, with some exceptions, as we saw in Nebraska.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's no question that there is a much more You can call it Trumpist, you can call it nationalist, but it's sort of a much more sort of see it in J.D. Vance in Ohio. You see it in a handful of other people in the party. It's sort of less Reaganite conservative. I think it, it is more populist, more nationalist fueled. It's sort of not the small government Jeffersonian. It's a very different flavor.
4: Didn't you kind of feel like you almost had to pinch yourself that here you are writing a book right on the cusp of one of the most complicated and tumultuous periods in American political history? You're talking to all these people, you're getting this taste of all the turmoil in both parties. Didn't you feel sort of like it was a great privilege?
6: We sure did. And I think it's something that, you know, as a historian, you'll particularly appreciate that. I think there was this sense Certainly early in my career as a reporter, I think Jonathan would likely say the same, that, you know, we're like a 52-48 country one way or the other, that our elections can only be so unpredictable, the outcomes can only be so wild. And the first part of that is still true, that we are like a 52-48 country on a lopsided day. But, you know, at the start of this campaign, we've thought about doing a campaign book for years. And every time new what has stopped us or given us pause anyway, is like, it's a lot of work to write a book. It's really hard. And you want to do something that's going to have a shelf life of longer than like four days, right? And too many campaign books, even the really, really good ones, just fade really fast if they don't sort of capture something bigger about the moment and the period that we're in. And at the start of this campaign, we thought it was clearly going to be a big one because of who Donald Trump was. And because of who the Democratic nominee might be, by the time we get to COVID hitting, we're obviously living through something that is much, much bigger than a conventional, you know, between the 40 yard lines, American presidential election, certainly by the time you get to January 6th. And so, yeah, it was thrilling and a huge privilege and also an enormous challenge to try to capture this moment of real testing up and down the American political system
5: what was so striking living through January 6th and the days after and seeing the barricades outside the Capitol, seeing the German Shepherds sniffing for bombs throughout the Capitol complex, seeing the damage to the Capitol itself. Oh my goodness. I mean, it was sort of tangible that you were covering this historic period. And I think that's why we decided, let's not rush this. Let's not tack on January 6th as sort of this hurried epilogue. Let's make this an important part of the story and take our time doing so. And most importantly, Newt, let's talk to every member that we can. I think that's what makes this book stand out is we do a lot of reporting with lawmakers, especially in the House, who, you know, frankly, either don't seek attention or don't really want attention. And we sat down with them on both sides of the aisle and were able to sort of draw on their experiences on the 6th before the 6th after the 6th to really get what I think is a rich comprehensive account of this period in American history.
4: And one of the things I most admire about how you've done this is you had a chance to end shortly after January 6th. That would have been a trump book. And you had no real way of knowing how fascinating the Biden period would be, and I think by any reasonable standard, while it's very different from Trump, it's equally fascinating.
6: I'm glad you think so. You know, one of the things we're obviously very, very appreciative of all the attention that our reporting on our Republicans has gotten, but, you know, almost half the book is about Democrats and some real challenges, political challenges that they have had as a party and some real internal, you know, really important, maybe sort of epic defining debates about what kind of party they want to be and what kind of country they think we ought to have. And You know, again, Jonathan alluded to our decision to sort of take some time on this one. If we had ended this after January 6th, you're right, it would have been a Trump book. If we had turned this thing in a year ago, in the spring of 2021, I think this would have been a book about the sort of dark last days of the Trump administration. And boy, is Joe Biden off to a roaring start right? COVID is receding. The economy is coming back. He passed the American Rescue Plan. Build Back Better is right around the corner. And thank goodness we didn't turn this thing in last May, because it's obviously a much more complicated, and for Democrats, a much more painful story than that.
4: Have you two begun to think about the next book picking up, you know, sort of the last year of Biden and the first year of whoever shows up in 26?
6: I think the challenge, you know, for any future project that we would do whether it's just reporting in our day jobs or a book project. Newt, I'm going to really pander to you here. You know, the folks who went to the moon and then they came back, they felt like, well, like, what can top going to the moon? This was an unbelievably uh, rich reporting experience. and really feel like we captured a crucial moment in modern American political history. Every election is super important. I don't know that you could tell a story of the same weight if we end up with like a rerun of Biden versus Trump in 2024. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I don't know that that's the election we're gonna get. I think it's very possible that we get the polar opposite of that outcome where neither of them runs and it's just a total stampede on both sides and it's a real time for choosing for both parties and ultimately for the country. And that would be one hell of a story. The
5: fitful transition of power in both parties in the next year and a half could be a pretty compelling story. If we get that story, it's not clear that we're going to.
4: I'm just going to say, because I'm a Reaganite and therefore an optimist, considering that he was an FDR Democrat, it seems to me that we may be at the beginning of opening up rather than closing down, that in fact, there are so many different things going on simultaneously that we may be very surprised at the evolution of the next three or four or five years in ways we haven't thought about that we'll look back later and say, oh yeah, now it's obvious. But it won't be obvious to those of us
6: who are living through it as we move forward. And I think that may be true in both parties. I couldn't agree more with that. And you know, so much of the last few years, with COVID as a very, very important exception, has felt like our political system grappling with kind of the unfinished business of the 20th century and with leaders who represent the sort of unexpired leadership tier of the 20th century and Over the next couple of years, I think the combination of new foreign policy challenges, new domestic challenges are related to energy and medicine and the changing structure of the economy. And then very likely, at least on one side, if not on both, the emergence of a new and different generation of personalities at the forefront of American politics. I agree with you. I think that it's very, very hard to anticipate exactly what trajectory things are going to take or what the basic terms of debate in American politics will even be in another couple of years.
5: It's possible that Biden could be closer to representing the sort of last of the Humphrey Democrats that he is to anything that's about to come next for what Democrats are.
4: Kevin McCarthy said one day that if you take the combined age of the top three Democrats in the House, they would go back to 1777. (laughs) You know, so in a sense, you've had open turmoil in the Republican Party because we don't have the presidency right now and we don't have the speaker and the majority leader, but you also, I think, see tremendous underlying pressure among the Democrats. And I can imagine three or four years from now that the landscape will be amazingly different.
5: Yeah, I think what Trump did is, you know, enlarge their coalition to the point of almost bursting, right? Because it now contains everything from AOC and actual socialists to people who were basically, you know, conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin and even disaffected Republicans, like some of your old friends at the Weekly Standard, Newt, that's a pretty big coalition. And it's not a very coherent one, except for when it's organized around one thing, which is opposition to Donald Trump. And if you don't have that organizing principle anymore, well, what happens to the coalition, right?
4: You could also have the reemergence of Trump in ways which would be a total nightmare for Bill Kristol. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it could be an AMC movie series, to put it differently. I want to thank you for joining me to talk about your fascinating new book, and I want to let our listeners know the book is This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy, and we'll have a link to it on our show page at newtsworld.com. And for those who may want to see them in person, they are currently on a media tour across the country. They'll be in San Francisco, Portland, and Los Angeles this coming week.
5: We're thrilled to chat with you about the book and appreciate the plug and appreciate you taking the time, Newt.
6: Really appreciate you having us on. And, you know, as we keep an eye out for that new narrative, I'm sure you will be a couple steps ahead of us. So stay in touch.
4: Thank you to my guests, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. You can get a link to buy their new book, This Will Not Pass, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three- free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought
3: WORK.